and good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. Is this this is becoming such a cliche opening? We've got to think of something. No, no, no. The uh, cliched opening comments are becoming part of the cliched opening. <laughs> ah, I guess so. That's our signature then. All right. So something fine. like that, you know. It, it, it's you know nine o'clock in the morning. It's going to be one hundred and five degrees Fahrenheit. Cyclones are coming. How is stuff there? It's not actually bad here. It's a, it's right around the freezing point. There's uh, a few days from now we're going to get some snow. I had. I, uh, in New York, Deanna Pacelli, who was, formerly was Peter Straub's assistant, and okay. she's neat, and her they're moving to Chicago, uh-huh. and she said we're, we're terrified of this of the of the weather. And I said, in the East Coast, in New York, and Boston, and even Washington D.C., has had probably ten times as much snow in Chicago as Chicago this year, and in the last two or three years. You should be you should be coming. You should be grateful for coming here. Uh, <laughs> we just have ordinary Midwestern winters. <laughs> Well, it, I got to say, fr- from here it sounds very cold, quite desirable, and, and and almost like a little bit sort of romantic. I mean, whenever you get snow and you don't live there, it sounds like Narnia, you know. Even though mm-hmm. I appreciate completely that it's nothing like that when you actually live through it. Um, for me, it is. Last a couple of years ago, when I was uh, on a research leave writing uh, this book, it was a tor- horrible, horrible winter. It's probably two yeah. or three Januarys ago, and it's, I, I just love it when the weather, weather is miserable outside because I don't want to go outside. And it makes me stay inside and get work done. Yep. Um, I, if I try to write a book during uh, – if I try to write anything substantial during um, late April and May when it's really starting to get nice outside and the trees are, are, are leaving and the flowers are in bloom, then mm-hmm. I just – I'm miserable staying inside having to work because I want to go out for walks and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, don't, I don't mind winters at all. And I, I don't mind heavy snowfalls because um, I can uh, – you know, from where I live, I can walk to my office and I can walk to the store and theaters and that sort of thing. So I don't really need the car yeah. uh, to survive like many people do. Yeah. Good. Good. And what's been happening in your science fictional week? Um, this morning I spent uh, – well, actually a good chunk of this week I spent sort of wrangling the nominators on uh, the William Crawford Award, which we mm-hmm. give out at Dick for every year. And we've already announced – today we announced uh, officially the winner is Karen Lord. And congratulations uh, who, uh, to Karen. And congratulations to Karen, who is uh, in Barbados, and uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm well. I'm absolutely certain is the first Barbadian writer to win the Crawford Award, and maybe the first Barbadian writer to win any award in our field at all. Uh, oh, okay. And um, really? Uh, well, I mean, how many writers from Barbados? She, she actually had won some novel uh, award in Barbados when this novel was first published there. Oh yeah. It was first published in the states this year uh, by Small Bear Press. Uh, I believe, and I may be mistaken on this, I believe uh, that her work was brought to uh, Kelly and Gavin's attention by Nalo Hopkinson, mm-hmm. uh, which is which, which is kind of a, a great uh, example of how this community works and how this sort of community of um, uh, writers that would have been uh, – would have, would have been thought on the edges of the genre of 15 or 20 years ago. I'm thinking of the the, the one of the, the the other the really leading runner-up was was uh, N.K. Jemison's The yeah, Hundred Thousand yeah. Kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked we've talked about Nettie Okorafor before. We've talked about Nalo sure, and that sort of sure. thing. And I was thinking there was a t- there was a time when Octavia Butler was it, or maybe Stephen Barnes and and, and Chip Delaney. But sure, but sure. by and large, there wasn't a sense that there was a whole movement outside of this sort of you know. Uh, Anglo uh, sure, American, sure. Anglo slash American slash Australian 
and now it's part of the field. It's a lot of slashes. It's a yeah. vital part of the field. It is absolutely. It's a lot of slashes, but you you are, you Australians have been kind of part of that thing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Barbados is brand new to this. <laughs> well, I was I was just wondering because I mean you know you mentioned Darlow and I, I think she comes from Jamaica, isn't it right? I think uh, originally, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I guess Toby uh, Bacal, he was from Grenada. So yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not sure who else might or might not have come from Barbados, but it's all sort of coming together into sort of what what at least we here in, in Australia think of as the West Indies. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's always it. been a tradition of, 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 of various kinds of Caribbean magic realism that sure. don't uh, necessarily impinge on our genre. And, uh, I, I, and there, there are writers like Edward Dondekott who are very – almost not quite – they have mainstream reputations. They publish yep. in The New Yorker. But there's always a kind of edge of magic to what they write. Yes. Um, and I, th- I think what's happening when you get writers that are that straddle both worlds, not like Nalo, because yeah, she's yeah. Uh, she, a Canadian and a Jamaican, and uh, has has a you know noble ancestry. I mean, her father was, I believe, Derek Walcott's partner in uh, uh, the Trinidad Theater Project. Okay. And um, and then you get somebody like uh, Nettie, who's who's actually an American, but whose parents are you know, are Nigerian. And and so she feels very much that she is interested in that tradition. She she knows a lot of Nigerian writers and filmmakers, mm. and and yeah. So so what happens when you get these people from all over the world, um, who are connected in both worlds to some extent? Then then I think our little insular world of science fiction and fa- oh, speculative fiction <laughs> is, is something. Yeah, stop it! Stop it! Apart. Okay. All right. I won't. Well, that, that that's. Um, we, we, I, I've got a couple of more things to say about that. We'll, get, we'll uh, come back to it, well. but yeah, we'll come back to it. But um, uh, the the last couple of years, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. The Crawford Award, as I think most people know by now, is is meant to honor a new writer. It's yes. for a first book of fantasy. Yeah. One of the writers before anybody starts uh, going on uh, the internet and complaining about this, one of the writers who is on the short list is Lauren Bukes, who's a South African writer, yes, now that yes. we talk about multiculturalism. It's actually her second novel. Okay. Uh, so, but it's a novel which is clearly, which is unexplainably a fantasy novel. Her first novel, Moxieland, uh, seemed to be science fiction. And yep. so we've said, okay, she's still a new writer. Uh, yep. You don't want to tell new writers that you can't write science fiction as your first novel or you'll never get a Crawford Award. Um, so her second novel became eligible, yeah. Uh, and and the, uh, the others are all pretty clearly. Well, that's because there is this weird thing about the Crawford, and it is a unique thing, rather say weird, that it recognizes mm-hmm. the first book, not you know if it's your first fantasy book, then basically you're eligible. Whereas if it's your you know like fifty third novel, but your first fa- fantasy book is probably okay, not just a first work. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, it's not just for a first work. Though, though it does and, tend towards debut works. I mean, I was looking at the short list. I mean, you mentioned Laura Bukes' Zoo City, but there's also Nora Jemison's Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, which is a debut novel. Right. Uh, Anna Kendall's Crossing Over, which I'm not sure whether, whether that's a debut or not. And then, of course, there's two. There's two honorable mentions. I guess you'd call them. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Jackson Bennett's Mr. Shivers mm-hmm. and Amelia Beamer's The Loving Dead, which are both sort of two science fiction for this award, but were under active consideration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was it was it was worth debating because it's one of the things that we had some interesting discussions about that, mm. uh, which I don't I I hope Amelia wouldn't uh, disagree with because clearly by the end of that book it's it's it, it moves into the future. There's a whole science fictional, but w- our discussion was 
uh, if you've got something that deals with a traditional supernatural figure like a zombie or a vampire or uh, some kind of a revenant, and then uh, essentially science fictionalize it, which more than one zombie novel has done. I mean, I am, uh, or, or uh, well, for, I, I am like, depending on how you approach it, you know, it's now been co-opted by the zombie people. It was written as a vampire novel, uh, but it was written with this kind of biological rationale uh, for vampirism. Does yeah. that make that novel science fiction? Yeah, um, and it, 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 yeah. it's odd. It's, it's what we were talking about a little bit last week with this genre purity test. Sure, of course. Yeah. And I was thinking, Richard Matheson's a good example of that because his first two novels, uh, the, the Shrinking Man, which is widely accepted as a science fiction novel, is pure magic. The yeah. guy starts shrinking because he's got this golden glittery dust that floats in on him when he's out in the boat. There's no, there's, <laughs> there's speculations. Maybe it's radiation. Maybe it's something. But it's magic. It's pixie dust. He's he's shrinking. Um, <laughs> And his other novel, which everybody thinks of as a fantasy or a horror novel, is the one that has biological rationales in it. I Am Legend uh, you know, doesn't pretend to be supernatural. Yes. Uh, so it's, it, 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 it really comes down to the, – the, the discussion was an interesting discussion. It did not go on for a long time, and it was not, a, uh, it was, it was not an ill-tempered discussion on no. anybody's part. No, 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 no. But it really came down to do you, do you classify a novel according to its affect, according to the way you read it, or according to what literally is happening in terms of the rationale for the action that's on the page? Mm -hmm. And in the and end, we decided. I I, in, in the end, we decided that, well, Amelia's novel is – uh, on the in the view of uh, most of the uh, judges, uh, very effective novel, very good novel. We liked it. It feels like fantasy. It feels like mainstream in many ways because the character relationships are developed that way. But in the end, the principal driving engine behind it seemed to be science fictional in the view of most of the uh, nominators. I should say nominators. I, I, I should explain this. I've explained yeah, it on yeah. the web and I've explained it every year. Well, uh, and and I, I I'm always vague because if as long as you're vague, people can't really disagree with you too much. <laughs> that, yes. That we we had a situation with this award where um, it's evolved over something twenty something years now. Uh, it was established by Andre Norton with one purpose in mind. She had two things in mind. Uh, she wanted to recognize new young writers, and she wanted to recognize fantasy because at the time she was establishing it, there were plenty of science fiction awards out there and not many for fantasy and she was uh, by, by the end of her career very much thinking of herself as a fantasy writer so that was the idea behind it she yeah. she established another condition which we essentially uh changed later on she wanted it to be an american writer yeah and since and, and she knew about this she knew about the change uh, we decided since the name of the organization is the international association for the fantastic and the arts it would seem a little bit prickly to say well this international organization is only yeah, awarding american course, writers. Yeah, so yeah. so it could be anybody yeah um and and then we had a situation where uh and i've seen this happen with other juried awards as well over a period of years uh you begin to be honest to run out of juries um yeah uh, and 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 you end up with a situation where we we for a few years uh we were uh, I, I, I won't say we're scraping the bottom of the barrel because that would insult any of the people, but we were finding it harder and harder to find people who both were aware of what was going on in the field, who read a lot in the field, and who um, uh, were willing to do this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. So, uh, so, so essentially what we did was instead of uh, having this poor group of people read books year after year after year or trying to establish a new jury year after year, which the World Fantasy Award does. Now, keep in mind, the World Fantasy Award has as its venue the entire field. Yes. And I 
ICF has essentially people that are associated with that conference. So we have a much smaller pool to choose from. Mm. So, so I take full blame for this, invented a system where I have a list of maybe 15 or so uh, people that, uh, that I want to name as nominators for the award. And, yeah. and, and anything to be considered. We don't consider things that are sent to us uh, uh, unless some, one of these nominators reads them and says we should look at it. Then the rest of us look at them. Yeah, and at, to be honest, during the during the period of, um, of of about probably three or four months when we're we're doing this, some people drop in with one or two recommendations and then drop out again. Mm-hmm. And the the essential rule of determining the final award is whoever's left in January on this discussion board is the one who gets to determine the winner. <laughs> and we ended up with uh, we always end up with about uh, seven or eight or nine people who who've been part yeah. of it. Uh, yeah. During the beginning, and and some of our loyal friends like uh, like 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 Farah Mendelssohn and Neil Harrison and Graham Slide and 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 Paul Whitcover of uh, and and Kelly Link have, have Morgan, been pretty yeah. consistent. Cheryl Morgan, yeah, uh, th- this group has been pretty consistent and and pretty reliable and and very conscientious. Uh, yes. So that when when we get into dis- disagreements, what I like about it is that they're intelligent disagreements and they're debates over interesting questions. Yes, uh, I would agree. And and. So, uh, so, so that's that's how the award comes. What's interesting to me is that, as I mentioned, two of the three, uh, well, let me see, three of, let's see, Nora is actually uh, American, but we had, uh, you know, the what well, as a field of nominees for this looks very different now from what it did 20 years ago. Yeah, which is good. Uh, You'd hope it would. The, yeah, I mean, we actually one of the awards went to uh, uh, an Indian writer. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, she. Chitra Banerjee Divakarini, Divakaruni, I think, uh, and one went years ago to Jonathan Lethem. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's it's been a pretty eclectic award award over the years. And and what's fascinating about an award for new writers, mm. um, and the last couple of years we've had uh, Daryl Gregory and Chris Barzak, and I'm um, I'm missing somebody there. I know. Yeah. Oh, uh, Jedediah Jed, Jedediah Barry. Yep. Um, and it's fascinating, even a couple of years out, when you look at let's for, let's say, for example, uh, uh, Chris's career, you can see these careers taking off from the awards. And it's abs- the, the, the reason there, there are two things I like doing this, which is not in large measure not fun because it's a lot of wrangling and so forth. One is I get to make these phone calls to people, <laughs> uh, and I always get the same. I mean, I uh, and I think it was. Um, Jed, I think I may have mentioned. I think it was Jed Berry. He can correct me on this if he's listening. Who I think I almost killed because he was answering his <laughs> phone in his car, which he, which you should not do, Jed. You'd be you'd be arrested no, no. in Illinois for doing that. And he and, and he said, well, he was. He said, I have to pull off to the side. I have to find a place where I can pull off. Or I'm going to get killed. Um, I, 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 t- I talked to um, um, when it, when I talked to. Um, uh, even Jonathan Lethem, back at the beginning of his career, was rather stunned at this. And um, everyone has that same reaction of, I can't believe this is happening. So it's the one phone call that people like to get. That's nice. Yes. The other thing, which is very rewarding about this, is to look back, and I don't have the list in front of me of, of the past winners, and see that actual careers evolve out of this. Yeah. Uh, uh, first novel awards. And, and, and to be honest, in the past, uh, when, when I – would admit the uh, award wasn't doing as well as it is now. There were people you'd give a first novel award to, and you'd find out that's their only novel. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And and by and large, that hasn't happened. And yeah. and and it, it must be the kind of feeling that some clarion teachers get when they get a student who <laughs> years later turns out to be uh, 
you know, Ellen Clages or Margot Lanigan sure, or somebody sure. who has a terrific career. Sure. Now, one thing I should say, the Crawford news is exciting. I'm very pleased that it's coming out. It's good to talk about it. But it's not the only award news of the week, is it? No, and Australia should be celebrating nationally this week. I got to tell you, I, I was dancing when I saw when I heard because it's really funny. Um, about well, last August, I sat down with uh, a friend of mine and we talked about awards and all this. And I sort of said, you know, like if you're nominated for an award, would you go? And he said, well, you know, if you're nominated, I don't know if I'd go. Now, for the, people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Sean Tan's nomination for an Oscar for Best That's what I was getting to. Film. That's what so, I was okay. getting to, Gary. It was indeed. All right. And I was just interested that sort of apparently uh, Sean and uh, his wife Anari were sitting in Melbourne and their computer connection was down. You don't get a phone call. It's just announced, right? Hey, you have to be up. It's, it's five in the morning in Hollywood. I have no idea what up time and, that would be. Uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night. Oh, okay. Uh, and so they're sitting there, and the computer connection is not working, right? And they're reloading the page, trying to find out what happened. Uh-huh. And then, boom, after 10 – I mean, this is it. It's like <laughs> Johnny come lately. After 10 years' work on a 15-minute feature, they're up for the Oscar, which I, I yeah. rate as one of two awards in the world that will change your life potentially, and which they're, they're, they're seen as being a very, very strong candidate to win. Oh really? I've not. Oh yeah. I've, I've not read the odds on that. I mean, it's a beautiful film, and it's uh, it's 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 only a question of of that of how many people I suppose I suppose have actually had access to see it. Yeah. Um, but I real I think these are voted by divisions of the Oscars. The thing that excites me about this is a not only that I've met and like Sean a lot, um, mm. uh, and but he's also somebody who is connected to our world. He feels comfortable yes. in it. He knows a friend of yours. He's yes. um, he's clearly somebody who's been up for awards within the genre. He's gotten awards within the genre. He's gotten World Fantasy Awards. Now, Hugo Award, didn't he? Yeah, he's, uh, he's got uh, Hugo Award. He's got three World Fantasy Awards, I think. Wow. Yeah. So in fact, I think it, he may it, have it, two Hugos, but yeah. Well, he, he's one of us, and yes. and I think the fact that he actually wrote and and, and, and directed this is a real connection to the kind of fantastic literature, which is what I'm using now instead of speculative fiction, uh, is worthy of this kind of consideration. I know Neil Gaiman was at what, last year's Oscars, yeah, but he did. He actually, I mean, Coraline was a film based on one of his books. That's yeah. why he was there. I believe. He wasn't an actual um, nominee, was he himself, or was he? He was not. An, he was not a nominee. I don't yeah. believe. I don't yes. believe. Uh, I, I believe Henry. I can't remember the guy's name. The guy who directed uh, Coraline. Henry Selig. Selig. I think yes. I think he may have written his own screenplay, but I don't think Neil did. Yes. Uh, Neil was there simply. It was clearly his story. Uh, I actually had talked to Neil, and uh, he, you know he he had visualized Coraline's house differently as anybody would. Yeah. Uh, so Henry Selig made it. But I'm trying to think: has there any, been anybody this closely associated with our field who's actually been nominated for an Oscar? I don't, I, I don't believe so. And also not for something, and I think this is really key and one of the reasons why I love this so much, uh, for something that's so intrinsically what they do. I mean, this is a, a you know, picture book that he created uh, a number of years ago. This is his adaptation of it. This is him directing it, uh, all this sort of stuff. So it's really, you know, it's not diluted. It's not him working as one of a team of animators for Pixar or something like that. Because I mean, he's done consulting animation work before. He did uh, some. Mm-hmm. Ads, he did some uh, design work for Wall-E, and he also did some artwork for, uh, gosh, one of the Doctor Zeus adaptations. 
Mm-hmm. Horton hears a who. Uh, there's actually a scene in it that he designed apparently. But this is this is enormous. This is like the biggest thing in you, know, you could possibly imagine, and you know. Given all the things that have been done, I mean, The Lost Thing has been a puppet show, it's been a rock album, it's been a book, it's now an, a 15-minute animated short, which I assume one day will be up soon on our iTunes. You can certainly buy it here would, um, in Australia yeah, from uh, Mad Men Entertainment, have a DVD release of it out. And I've got to tell you, for the first time in 15 years, I'm staying up to watch the Oscars because I think my friend might get one. And it was, just to see anybody that you personally know up there at the, as accepting one. Mm. Well, I was thinking nobody in our field. I think, and I may be misremembering this, and I'm not. I don't even have my other computer on uh, at the moment. Uh, there may have been in the same animated category, either short film. I'm going back decades now. Uh, a couple of Eastern European films were nominated. Sure. One, I think, was a kind of what would now look like a kind of steampunk animation about Jules Verne. It's called The Fabulous World of Jules Verne or something like that. Yep. Um, and that was connected. I don't think it was made by anybody that we would recognize or anybody who was connected with this community in the broader sense. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this is certainly within our purview, within the time that we've been paying attention to this sort of thing. It's, um, yes. it's phenomenally good news. And, uh, and as I mentioned, there's, uh, there's, there's actually the Australia, the Australians did well at World Fantasy Awards. And now you've got a Best Supporting Actress nomination Yes, we do. Uh, for that uh, gangster film. So. We do well, for uh, Animal Kingdom for Jackie Weaver, and good luck to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I mean, I mean, you may forget, but Jeffrey Rush is one of ours as well. I, I, yeah, no one forgets that. Uh, for, the, for the King's uh, Speech, which I, which I saw last night, which is excellent. I loved it. It's it was, very good. I, I saw it last week. Uh, people had kept urging me to see it, and uh, actually... Um, Ellen Clages was in town and had seen it and said, I want to see it again because I want to look for some things in it. And I, I said, well, it, it, it's one of these films where um, you, the, the, I have a part, uh, partly I have this reaction because of uh, too many films that are too much royal watching. Too I mean, the, mm-hmm. it turned out when I watched The Queen a couple of years ago, I liked it a lot also. But the fact is you're watching a, a, a two-person acting performance that is stunning. Mm, uh, yes. and Yes, um, and, and I, I can't imagine Colin Colin Firth not getting this Oscar. You never know. Um, and and Jeff, and, but the but the thing is, here here is the other thing that deals with the politics of the Oscars. And how do we get into this? Why wouldn't Jeffrey Rush be nominated in the Best Actor category? Simply because you don't want to divide the vote between them. Yeah. Yeah. So one of those guys has to be a supporting actor in yes. order to have yes. each of them to have a chance. Exactly. Uh, and that, that's a common enough thing you see it in other areas too. So, and, mm-hmm. okay, awards are. Over goodbye awards. We also have some housekeeping to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some spec fic things to discuss, don't we? Oh yeah, all right. <laughs> and can I just say quickly, this is the, my argument. I said this somewhere uh, elsewhere, I think, offline. But this is the argument why we should actually plan what we're doing, so then I won't sort of stupidly say something casually in conversation without really thinking it through, and suddenly it runs away with itself. Well. I, I think you should, and I think that's part of the charm of what we're doing, <laughs> is we say things without even thinking for a moment about them. What surprised me? I mean, yeah. Now, now, now you, 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 our friends at Galactic Suburbia, I think, talked about this. Yes. And uh, and, and, and Catherine Valenti, um, thank you for listening, Catherine, uh, mentioned the fact that she doesn't like the term speculative fiction on her live journal and got something like 120 responses and comments within the next 
hours. So, so the first thing that surprised me about it, I was thinking I, I have a mild dislike of the term. I, mean, I don't want to spend the whole no, 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 no. rest of the podcast talking about that term. But people are passionate about their terms. I was looking yeah. at those comments on Kat's live journal, and people passionately defend SpecFic. They passionately attack it. They, the people who say they don't care are passionate about saying they don't care. Uh, like everybody has strong feelings on this issue. <laughs> oh, it's easy to have strong feelings about things that don't matter, Gary. <laughs> I guess so. But, uh, but, but it, it did make me think that, uh, that, that these terms mean different things to different people at different times, uh, and, and, yes. and, and they change over time. I'm sure when Robert Heinlein, yeah. uh, which apparently I checked at my old book, apparently first used the term in public at a 1941 Worldcon, um, hmm. and said we should use this term because what he was doing was recognizing the fact that uh, that he and Campbell and a few other people were in the process, of a very conscious project of trying to rescue science fiction from the 30s pulps, from the bug-eyed yeah, monster yeah, pulps, yeah. and that sort of thing. And th th that was a very noble kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and, and years later, it gets picked up in various other ways. Uh, for a while, Judy Merrill was trying to, in her annuals, just replace everything with a, with a non-specific SF. If you yeah. look at the last several annuals that Judith, Judith Merrill did, uh, I think the first one actually said the year's best science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. But by the time she was up to volume 10 or 11, it was SF the year's best. Yeah. And she was very coy about whether that stood for science fantasy, because her very first anthology, footnote, was labeled a science fantasy, which okay. is a label that's now gone away. It was called yes. uh, Shot in the Dark. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, so it could mean science fantasy, it could mean science fiction, it could mean speculative fiction, it could mean anything. She just kind of washed her hands of the whole affair and said, it's SF, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, the um, uh, other terms, I mean, uh, I was looking back also, The um, uh, go back to the same period when Wilson Tucker, I believe, coined the term space opera. Yeah. And that was clearly a way of distancing serious science fiction from that same uh Let's see. I can almost quote what he said: "The worn-out spaceship yarn." The no, 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 no. The, the hacking, grinding uh, horse oh, opera. I, okay. I, I, the, the original quote, because I remember, so I was had to write it up not that long ago. And hacking and grinding are definitely in the original quote. They could very well be, and it was um, uh, again it was a completely pejorative term. Oh, I yeah. wrote this uh, uh, glossary 25 years ago now, uh, 1986, and space opera was still pretty much. Uh, a historical term. It was yep. something that happened in the 30s. Yes. And what's happened in the last 25 years, it's been completely rehabilitated. It's now a mode of writing. It's a it's a subset of science fiction, but it's not something that refers to science fiction of the 30s the way it did for, for several decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, what's um, New Wave, uh, which was a controversial term for a long time, and as recently as the early 80s, you, 80s, you could see the New Wave being associated with writers, uh, somebody would come along in 1982 and be called a new wave writer because it wasn't gone. Now it seems to refer to a historical period. Yeah, it does. So, 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 so and I used to have a friend who was a linguist, at, uh, the professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago. And one of the things he did was talk about how terms and words shift and reverse meaning over time. So that yeah. in the 1940s, space opera became a pejorative term. Now it's a historical term. In the 1970s, new wave was a stylistic term. Now it's mostly an historical term. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you wouldn't see anybody, and I don't think I have seen anybody who's entered the field in the last 15 or 20 years being called a new wave writer. No, oh, no. That, that, that would now mean they're an old-fashioned writer. 
Yes, it would. It would be uh, harking back to the you know to the as you say the 1970s or the late 1960s and all that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know what you, what you would call yourself today. Uh, I suspect that the best thing to do is not call yourself anything. But uh, yeah, we, we do. And not not only do we love our terms, we love to um, quibble over them. I think would be mm -hmm. fair to say. You know, uh, the number of conversations I've had with people over the concept of the new space opera, whether it really exists, whether it really doesn't, how, what you would point to, how you'd find the new space opera from the old space opera, blah, 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 blah. And part of you is going, oh, can we move on and actually actually talk about fiction now or something? Well, I mean, part the, of the, the bottom the, the bottom line with any almost any writer I've ever talked to is once you get past all the labels, with the exception of people who um, – well, to be honest, they're hacks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Most of most of them at the end of the evening will say, "Why can't you just call me a writer, like everybody else?" Um, because after all, mainstream. Oh, here, here's your term for the night. That's the other thing. We, we we can do this once a week. We can kite this forever. The term for the night that I hate is mainstream. Okay, tell me why. And well, my my, my reason for it is that first of all, there's no such thing. Sure. Uh, secondly, it's been used against science fiction. It's been used by science fiction writers against themselves. Yes. And if you go back to um, uh, people who were uh, died in the wool, uh, you know, lived and breathed science fiction, and Donald Walheim is one person. And I got into this argument with Donald Walheim once. For Donald Walheim, mainstream meant essentially everything from Plato and Aristophanes to Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor. Anything that wasn't science fiction was mainstream. Yes, in, in, in other words, the, the wall around our genre was actually made of bricks of mainstream. Exactly. I mean, you know, we, we are this tiny, to use a Cludian term, polder, and, and the vast sea around us is mainstream, and it's trying to inundate us all the time, and we have to build dikes mm -hmm. uh, to protect ourselves. Um, that, so, so that's one 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 issue is that it, it becomes it lumps things together that shouldn't be lumped together. Yep. Uh, it lumps together James Patterson thrillers and mysteries because they're sure. not because sure. right, ostensibly realistic, and to some extent it denies the whole idea of genre. And as much as I respect writers who simply want to be called writers, mm. uh, I don't I don't know very many people that necessarily want to be called mainstream writers because you know in terms of book sales that means you're put anonymously on the shelf with every other contemporary novel. And you're in a section of the bookstore which is five or six times as large as the little section, and, and, and your readers don't know how to find sure, you there. Sure, sure. Um, but there's also a sense that uh, uh, there, there, there is a value to identifying yourself uh, as a genre writer. One of the things that's interesting to me is that mystery writers, and I've only known a handful of mystery writers in my entire life, and the only one I sure. knew well was Robert Parker. Yeah. Uh, they are completely aware of the fact that they're writing mysteries. Yes. They know that's what the market is. They they have no embarrassment about it at all. Uh, but at the same time, they all want to stretch into another area. And when they do that, uh, they can be successful. A good example is Dennis Lehane, who sure. wrote uh, you know all these Mystic River. One, well, uh, Mystic River was his breakout, his literary novel. And he's done a couple of other literary. But he had a he had a um, a, a series of detectives. I forget their uh, detective novels. One of which was made into a movie yes. called Gone Baby Gone. Um, they were fine. He was perfectly happy writing those. He didn't mind being called a mystery writer. Mm -hmm. What he wanted to do was to stretch the mystery genre into the quote-unquote mainstream yeah. and was able to successfully do it more than once. Science fiction writers have, have been able to do that as well. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean you're giving up one thing to become the other thing. Dennis no. Lehane's mystery readers all picked up and presumably enjoyed uh, Mystic River. Uh, 
I would say from a distance, though, that one di difference that appears to exist is it's much easier to write a literary mystery novel that's accepted as a literary novel than it is to write a literary science fiction novel that's accepted as a literary novel. That's absolutely true, and it's something that's always fascinated me. For that matter, it, back when Westerns were still a viable form, mm. they essentially uh, – they essentially morphed into literature. I mean, essentially, yeah. you know, the Western genre, there is that little core of Western readers out there. and mm -hmm. there's, the, People still write Westerns. But essentially, what most of us think of as Western fiction these days is Cormac McCarthy or Larry McMurtry or people that we think of as, as literary writers. Yeah, yeah, very true. And, and I don't think anybody in science fiction has been able to do that. And it's, it's one of the things that I've talked to writers about. I've talked to at least, I know at least one science fiction writer, Daniel Keyes, who stopped going to science fiction conventions and started going to mystery conventions because basically, you know, the press covering it would treat them with a lot more respect. Hmm. Well, I guess that's fair enough. You, you know, I've, I've seen, look at newspaper accounts of a BoucherCon compared to newspaper accounts of a WorldCon. Yeah. Uh, the BoucherCon is talking about how all these clever writers get together and they talk about how uh, all the ins and outs. They talk, they talk about the literature. Uh, the average newspaper account of a world con talks about the costumes and makes jokes about uh, Boba Fett. And, uh, and, sure, and, sure. And I don't know whether we facilitate that or not. But uh, Speaking of conventions, I did notice, by the way, have you bought your World Fantasy Convention membership there? More than 50% sold out? Oh, it is. I should buy it. As you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to I go know, this year. I know. About, it's a, this is going to be one of the great boring subtexts. I've got something to come back to at terms of a minute. Subtext of our coming podcast is deciding where we're going to go later in the year and where we're going to actually see each other, whether I'm going to be able to come to Reno and hang out there. Uh, mm -hmm. Because they seem very organized, the Reno people. They got in touch with me oh, a week or so ago about programming. Um, yeah, same here. And, or whether I'm going to go to San Diego, which I'm supposed to go to. Uh, and it's because it's going to be either or, and I won't decide for a little while. But you know, that'll be interesting. I, I well, I mean, the, the, the Reno WorldCon looks to me to be a good WorldCon, and I, and and one of the reasons I want to make an effort to go, I think, uh, in both cases, you should expect to get nominations for at least something. I don't uh, know. Which is you, know, I love, you never know. You, not, you never a, know. That's it, up for those it, nice it, people out there. Uh. Mm. But, but but I mean the, the thing is, but, but at Reno one of our well, you know, one of the guests of honor is our friend Charles. Yes, it seems like it almost seems like the last thing you can do for Charles in a public venue. That's it. So go and manipulate really me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making you feel a little bit guilty. You know, fine, fine. We'll we'll send Charles off on the flaming boat without you. That's okay. <laughs> well, you did, but I mean, um, I I did promise him. I, well, I did say I'd go. He actually contacted me. About uh, a year before, well, sometime before he died, probably the October, mm -hmm. the November before, before he died, and said, "I just quietly found out. You cannot tell anybody that I'm going to be the guest of honor at Reno. You have to come." Yes, and, and, a, and I and I said to him, "I will go." You know, mm -hmm. um, so I guess on one hand you could say, "Well, that settles that, doesn't it?" You know, you got to go to Reno. Um, on the other hand, you know, life moves on. And I've told an awful lot oh, yeah. of people I'm going to go to World Fantasy, so we'll see. Well, uh, I'm going to see what I can do about it. I mean, it's, it's it's going to be tough for me, but like I say, I have to. You 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 do not blow off a bat mitzvah. That's just one of the things in life that. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, there's something I've been trying to manipulate you to do, by the way, through the, through email or during the week, uh, as a little suggestion. You've been talking about. Um, 
science fiction terms, about the joy and fun of spec fic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying you might update your dictionary of, or your, your book on critical terms. Somebody told me this book, which came out in 1986, is was going for some ridiculous price on uh, mm-hmm. ABE, uh, which it might be. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was it was a book that didn't have a lot of print at the time. But ever since I did this, and it got uh, people used it a lot, and it's in libraries. You could probably find copies of it. But then uh, John Clute has been asking me for years, why don't you update this, and why don't you add terms to it? And I and, and part of the reason I haven't is that in 1986, what I did in mm-hmm. terms of putting together this book of terms, and it's it's a, it's only literary critical terms that have been used either by professional writers or or critics or academics in the field it's not a it's not a fan cyclopedia kind of thing yeah uh, and and sam moskowitz uh you know may he be dearly remembered hated the book with a okay. passion oh awesome uh, that's good had no had no fan terms in it at all he said <laughs> terrible book Ter-. he was i, I got uh, this is a horrible story to be telling about somebody who's deceased because he did have his you know he did have his larynx he so said the 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 box that you attach to your mm-hmm. throat to speak. And um, when I was accepting an award for this from the science fiction, he was in the audience. He was one of the guests. Oh, yeah. uh, maybe he was, I think he was the Pilgrim Award winner that year, as a matter of okay. fact. Yeah, yeah. And he was trying to mutter to the people at his table. And you could, and what he was muttering was, that's a terrible book. It's a terrible book. But he had his, he had the volume on his voice box turned up much higher than he thought. So he wasn't muttering. And it, <laughs> instead it, it sounded like a loudspeaker booming throughout the room as I come up. Uh, suddenly you hear this loud mechanical voice saying, terrible book, terrible book. And I thought, this is – I didn't even know what it was for a minute. Um, <laughs> but then there, there, there were some, some reactions as well because there are uh, terms that I think are absolutely wonderful, colorful terms uh, that have evolved in fan culture like gaffiate, for example, or, or, or smoth. And all but, kind but, of but hang on, hang on. Let me ask you a question about this book, which I've not seen, first of all, because I've got mm-hmm. two thoughts about it. The first is, how do you distinguish in science fiction between a fan term and a non-fan term? Because arguably, something like uh-huh. Swords and Sorcery and something like Space Opera were coined in a fan environment. The question is how much they've been adopted for use by others uh, as serious critical terms. Okay. Uh, so it's not so, the original uh, uh, of them. It's not the origin of them. I mean, uh, and, and some of them uh, – and again, writing this book several years ago, uh, a lot of the terms like sword and sorcery is a Fritz Leiber term. Mm-hmm. And uh, the terms that were coined and came into common usage in the 30s and 40s and 50s by and large came from uh, writers writing in fanzines. Yes. Uh, and so, I, and so, one of the things I was doing was making a distinction between terms which actually had entered the vocabulary about the literature, like sword and sorcery, and terms which were basically about the fan world, about yep. fan behavior, about fan activity, okay. fan act, that sort of thing. Um, the uh, and, and and the scholarship of the field, which is something that I've studied for years, you know, the, the the critical tradition that I belong in, and Clued and everybody else belongs in, is a critical tradition that began in. In fanzines, yes. which is by Damon yeah. Knight and James Blish. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is a fanzine here in many ways. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's no doubt that in you know very significant terms came from from that world. Other terms uh, came from the academic world. Other mm-hmm. terms. We were talking, for example, uh, about uh, uh, how do you, you know, concisely develop an umbrella term to talk about science fiction and fantasy and um, and horror. As related genres, and it, one of the things I uncovered, which never caught on, but it was used separately and coined separately by two or three people, was supergenre. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Never heard of it. The super genre is a collection of related genres that have some common readership, uh, some common conventions, in this case being non-realistic, and, uh, and, and, and some similarity in marketing in that you know, for a long time science fiction, fantasy, and horror were edited by the same editors and published yes. by the same lines. Sure, sure. Uh, so super genres seem to make a uh, make perfectly good sense, but it's a term which died out within five or six years um, after it was coined. So mm-hmm. what I did was I, I went through hundreds of sources and, uh, and and circle terms in each of them and then keyed each term to whichever source it had come from. So if somebody wanted to find out if this came from an academic book or if it came from uh, a, a, a fanzine or if it came from a professional writer. I mean, here's a good example mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a writerly term that somehow – uh, made its way into the critical vocabulary was A.E. Van Vogt's term fix-up. Yep. It was, from his point of view, it was something, it was a piece of business a writer does. You know, yeah. It's one of the things, if you're a pulp writer, you've got a bunch of stories, you knit them together and pretend it's a novel, that's a fix-up. Yes. Um, and it was, it, was, it was not meant to be a, a, a necessarily disparaging term. Clute picked it up, in, Clute and Nichols picked it up in the Science Fiction Encyclopedia. Sure. And it became sort of fixed in a in a standard reference book. And yes. since then, it's evolved. It's evolved to become a. I think usually it has a fairly negative connotation for most people. I don't know, Dawson. Uh, I mean, I, I know that Le Guin tried to turn it around when she coined Story Suite. Story Suite, yeah. Which I don't think has ever really ta- taken off in any substantial way. Um, and it's funny how I, 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 yeah. I, I was going to say I, I think she had something slightly different in mind because. Um, a story suite is a series of stories. I mean, it, it still works. I think I've used the term mm-hmm. uh, in one of in one of Liz Hand's collections. She has three or four related stories based on mythological themes. They're kind of a story suite. They're thematically related, but you're not trying to knit them together and pretend it's a novel the way Van Vogt was with, for example, The Voyage of the Space Beagle. Mm-hmm. So it's a, there's a slight difference there. But you're right. Generally, the term has not been caught on. And that's a good question. If I were to redo this book today, would I include a term like story suite? Um, how, f- and that's what's fun about this. Steampunk, it's out there, you know, it's it's established. Steampunk started not in any academic essay. It started in a letter to Locus magazine. Cyberpunk. Uh, uh, cyberpunk was coined by... Well, Gardner on a panel, wasn't it? Gardner. Gardner co- coined it, yeah. Um, so these things emerge from... Fan conventions, they emerge from panel discussions, they emerge from editorials, letters to the editor. The question is whether they stick or not, yes. and some of them don't. Manor Punk, remember Manor Punk? Oh, I do, I do. Yes. And I, it's, All it's, the punks. It's kind, of come, it's kind of come and gone, yeah. As it should. Uh, um, I have a theory as to why Clute's so eager for you to do this. Because he's coined all the terms. He has coined all the other terms. <laughs> <laughs> he really has. Almost none of which, in my experience, have caught on beyond his own immediate group. I don't use polder in, a, in day-to-day conversation. I find fantastic as always sounds to me like it's some secondary world not in, a, in like a Michael End novel or something, uh, rather than a useful term. And you know, there's lots and lots of them, but they're all his. Yeah, they are. Although, uh, although as somebody. Uh, pointed out, uh, Cheryl was talking about this on, on, on her blog as well, and somebody pointed out Fantastica is a Russian term that encompasses science fiction and fantasy. Um, and it's, 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 not, uh, it's not his coinage, it's simply his adaptation of a term which is used sure. in Russia and part of Eastern Europe. I remember uh, there's a some of the, the Italian term, I think, was fantascienza. Okay. Which is kind of cool, but that's still, that's science fantasy is what it amounts to. True. 
And yet we do oh. occasionally pick these things up. I mean, look, isn't Novella actually Italian? Yes, it is. And uh, and if you talk to uh, if I, I talk to people in Mexican neighborhoods here in Chicago, who are novella means a specific kind of photographic graphic novel, huh. which is very popular in the there Spanish community. Because I remember looking up the origins for when I was writing the best short novels introductions, and I'm fairly sure, off the top of my head, that novella literally means in Italian something like little novel, mm-hmm. which is nice and apt, and that caught on quite well. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It, it's and, interesting. You know, and, and, and one of the one of the words which I think is which has been around for a long time, mostly um, in the magazine industry, novelette is beginning to disappear. If it weren't for the Hugos, I think novelette would be just about out of our vocabulary. Huh? You're probably uh, well. I guess well, because well, I'm be, because I'm immersed in it, I hadn't really noticed that. But uh, maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, the only people who have tried to define uh, stories by word lengths, as far as I know, are awards committees and some magazines. Yes. Uh, but by and large, uh, the uh, I, I have no doubt that uh, that, that uh, Chekhov... I mean, I'm sure that Thomas Hardy... I mean, I'm sure that uh, Joseph Conrad was aware of the fact that Heart of Darkness was a novella. Yes. Um, but he'd written some other shorter stories, and I doubt if he ever thought of them as novelettes. Probably. Um, novelettes sound to me like it's something. No, you, novelettes are something you should buy at the candy counter at the movies. Uh, it, it doesn't well, yes. sound real. Yeah, I, I understand exactly what you mean. There is that feeling like, eh, what is that? It's, not, yeah, it's a novelette, you know. It's like yeah, a little bit of a novel. Yeah, Here you go. There, yeah, you have that. I'll throw it in with, with, with this. But anyway, enough of disparaging novelettes. Yeah, enough of that. We spent an awful long time well, okay. talking about critical terms, Gary, and we said we weren't going to spend an awful lot of time talking about critical terms. <laughs> <clears throat> that's true but like I said we found out that people were passionate about them and fascinated mm-hmm. by them and so forth and and people that's the other thing which may be, uh, may be more of an obsession in our field people love to try to coin terms you're right yes. as soon as, as as soon as cyberpunk is out there and steampunk is out there people want to come up with every kind of punks I, uh, yep. we could probably ask our people out there our listeners to just name all the punks you've heard of and there are probably some that I haven't heard of that's like splatterpunk it's like Spl- hey, splatterpunk hey, <laughs> This isn't a podcast, it's Radio Punk. Radio Punk, yeah. That will never catch on. A few on. years it's ago, terrible. I was, I, I, no, it, no, and, and punk, my, my, my feeling is punk is dead. Punk you can't kill it, though. You cannot kill everybody. I, mean, I've heard, I hear people again and saying, we've had enough of punk, punk is dead. No. And you're going, okay, awesome. Because that was like 1976 and we're done, you know. Yeah. Uh, interesting, of course, in music, Punk came before the new wave, but anyway. Um, but what so, we never did, what we never picked up, the music has been doing, music and film have been doing for a long time, is core. Core is a great suffix. You know, you've got nerdcore rap, you've got mumblecore movies, you've got hardcore <laughs> pornography. Uh, we don't have any cores. We need cores. Specific core. Specific core. Ain't gonna Gosh, work, is it? That sounds like a. I don't know. It sounds like a Transformers name. (laughs) I don't know what it would be. That's awful. (laughs) Uh, We've been nattering for a while, Gary. Tell me, what are you reading these days? Um, Let me see. I I, I mentioned last week I'd started reading this novel uh, by Chris. uh, I can't remember his name now. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's somebody. somebody Oh, yeah. Chris Sacknesson. Sacknesson, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And it's turning out to be. Very fascinating, oh, and uh, that's interesting. I've got a new collection of Peter Beagle short stories coming out from Tachyon, yes, which is always going to be interesting. Yeah, a couple of original stories in that, which is nice. Uh, and uh, 
and and I was able to write, which I which I gather now from Twitter is the first review anywhere, uh, although it hasn't been published yet. The first review to be written, maybe of, of Margot Lanigan's Yellow Cake, yes, which is one of those things. And I was thinking when I was reading that, even though I'd read almost all the stories in it, uh, which is this is unusual for Margot anthology. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that she's written. Almost nobody else had done this, but when she started out, she was publishing books of short stories that were completely original to the book. Absolutely. It's completely true. Uh, I, I think – I don't know the actual history of it. I'm going to guess it's simply an artifact of how she came into writing and what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it also ties into Clarion, believe it or not, because Margo, really? went, Margo went to Clarion, and I'm pretty sure that the 10 stories that made up White Time were all products of Clarion. Um, and then she did Black Juice, and it was also all ten original. And then she had to write the extra one, I think, The Point of Roses or something, mm. for the British edition of of, um, of that book. Right. And, and then uh, for Red Spikes, again, all, is, yeah. all ten are original. Now, you're right. In this case, for Yellow Cake, all stories are reprint stories. And I know she has at least in, enough stories for an adult collection as well. I think there is one original story in this one. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, but, That's right, but, but, but essentially, it's uh, what, what struck me about it is that there are writers, and this is one of the things where you have to sort of at some point, uh, if, if people, read, people who read my reviews probably know this, there are some writers that you really look forward to seeing whatever they're going to do. Uh, and I don't read short fiction the way you do because you have to read lots of it. Mm. But, you know, I will look at a, 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 new, a new collection. And to some extent, I'm glad I don't because – when I remember reading Margot's first two collections, I remember thinking, okay, this is a good story, but the next one can't be as good. And then you keep thinking, there are 10 stories that have never been published by <laughs> anybody before. That, And they're just astonishing, one after the other. Yeah. Some are better than others, but they're all astonishing as a group. I was almost disappointed at having recognized so many of these stories because I was thinking, I have a new, brand new land of discovery here. Yes. Um, now, some of the stories, mean. to be honest, had, had only been published in Australia, but, but no. there is that sense of discovery. Really? And, okay. Well, yeah, I think the the, the um, sorry that was a well, I mean, an unfair thing to throw at you. I just I still thought really is that true? I didn't think that was true. Okay, because I mean I, I was thinking that she actually well, wrote a batch of them for me. Mm-hmm. There's a story from Starry Rift. Well, and, I, and, and those, those I, I'd read the ones exactly, and, uh, and there there were a couple that I hadn't seen before because they'd only uh-huh. been published in Australia. Um, but you know, there, there, there's, there, there, there's. It's not disappointment because I like the stories, and mm-hmm. you know, one of the secrets of being a reviewer is if you're reviewing a book full of stories which you've mostly read, it's really easy to reread them and, and say <laughs> something about them. Yes. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it's not that. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. There are certain writers uh, that, uh, no matter how jaded you get with reading tons and tons of stories, you want to see what they're going to do. And I know you do this in anthologies because I've seen you ask people to write stories that. That were unexpected, like having Jeff Ford write a space opera story. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, and part of that, it's got to be your reaction. It's got to be the same of mine. I want to see what Jeff Ford's going to come up with next. Yes, right. I want to see what Margot's going to come up with. I want to. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Kelly Link, uh, um, a steampunk anthology, which has yes, an original yeah, story. Absolutely. I want to see the Kelly Link story. I want to see New Mary Rickard stories. Yes. There, there are some writers that I will just, you know, put down, and I've done this. More often than I suppose is professionally responsible. I'm reading something dutifully, which is not bad. And here comes in uh, Mary Ricketts' Holiday. Uh, I'm going to read that. And first. I don't care if I. I'm going to read that. I'm going to yes. read that now because I know this is going to be something I'm going to enjoy. Okay. Let me and, ask you an unfair and, question. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to kill your your role here for a second because I want to. How do you write? Because I'm curious. I mean, 
I've not read Yellow Cake as a book yet. I've read all the pieces bar the original story, obviously. How do you rate it against the other three collections? Hmm. I did not really think about doing that. It's it's interesting. I think one of the things that you begin to see with this is that there are patterns in her stories and mm-hmm. one of, for example there's a certain number of mythological stories there's a certain number of sort of fairy tale stories uh, there are stories which are almost all dialogue and there are stories which are almost no dialogue mm-hmm. so you begin to see what her characteristic moves are more with something like this but that's more from familiarity with the other collections sure uh, my guess is that uh, there are iconic stories for any writer and the iconic story for any number of readers that I've talked to, uh, for Margo, was singing my sister down. Yes, absolutely. Um, once you've once you've read that story, you're kind of sold on anything else she writes. Uh, there are some stories. There's a very clever, uh, for example, it's, it's it's very cleverly worked out, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's ingenious uh, take on the Rapunzel story. Yes, uh, which is complete. It's it's not singing my sister down. It's a very clever variation on something. But I would say the same thing about. Uh, uh, well, she'll take it in a completely unexpected direction. One of the things that did occur to me, and I didn't, I didn't mention this when I was writing the review, she has a story about uh, Charon, about ferrying the souls of yes. the dead. And she places it in her sort of characteristic rural bumpkin kind of society where the you know, Ma's home fixing dinner and, and the daughter whose name is Sharon, uh, Sharon I forget her last name. Um, yeah. Uh, carpet. Anyways, perfectly ordinary, and she has to, you know, basically inherit her father's business. That's very interesting, and it's a very interesting take on something. But it's a kind of parallel to a similar take on Karen that Jeff Ford wrote a few years ago. Yeah, it's not the same story at all. No. But the fact is, the same kind of thing, and seeing if you can take it. So you begin to recognize moves that some of these writers make. Yes. Um, that are uh, un- unlike anything else, but it's one. And, and Amelia Beamer and I did an article a couple of years ago, uh, which I think we got published somewhere, on trying to identify the characteristics of writers who are described as slipstream slash interstitial slash slash slash. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 part of that, there there are some things. There there is a return to mythological sources, which you see in Margot, you see it in Jeff Ford, and you see it in Mary Rickard. Um, Mm. There is uh, the kind of isolated, uh, almost um, – oh, well, I, I, I don't know how you'd describe it. In the, in the States, you'd call it as an, almost a hillbilly community uh, that shows up in one form or another in uh, now and then in all of those writers. It's not mm-hmm. something they do all the time, but it is – it, be, it begins to realize, real, begins to make you realize that there are specific strategies that are being used in very yeah. creative ways by these writers, um, and then there, and there, there are the things that are completely original that you've never seen before, and they all, uh, the the three three or four people I'm mentioning, they all do that with a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, even if you go back, to, uh, you look at the fairy tale origins, you can look at Kelly Link's Catskin, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so there's 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 a dialogue with this whole tradition of story, which is a new kind of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Margot is, I mean, it, it, some of what I think Margot's doing in her fiction, you can see vague echoes in Peter Carey's fiction. Yeah, uh, he's taking, you know, he's doing it on a much broader canvas, obviously, on a much larger scale. But he's taking stories that you think you know and showing you that you don't know them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about his novel uh, uh, based on uh, Great Expectations, 
uh, mm-hmm. whose title is escaping me at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, so, so, so it's, it's interesting when you read enough of something, you begin to see patterns in a writer, but that happens with anybody. You know, you read – one time I read all of Hemingway's short stories. Or he, had a, he had a collection late in his career called The First 49 Stories. Yeah. And yeah, you know exactly what Hemingway's doing by the time you're five or six stories in. You yeah. can do that yeah. with Flannery. So it, it, it's, it's not a criticism of any of these writers that you can begin to recognize their moves. To some extent, you begin looking for that. You begin mm-hmm. to think, what are they going to do with this now? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what the fascination is. Uh, the fascination is always seeing something which, uh, even when you think you've got them nailed down, you haven't. Yeah. I will say I'm looking forward to both uh, the four-story chapbook that's going to come out from uh, – well, not chapbook. The four-story collection that's coming out from 12th Planet Press later this year. Of, of Margot's to get four original stories at once is going to be very interesting. Uh, and also to uh, Watered Silk, which will be coming out probably around, I guess, September or so here in Australia, which is the new novel. Now, is, that the new, is that the new title for the Selkie novel? Yes, it is. It was originally The Brides of Roll Rock Island. Uh-huh, uh, that's what I'd Watered Silk is at least, from what she said on Twitter, um, is at least going to be the title in one of the territories. It doesn't seem everybody can agree what it should be called. So it's kind of multiple titles. I don't know what the others are, but certainly I think here it's going to be called Watered Silk. So, Do you know if uh, – this is probably something I should ask you, not on the podcast, but <laughs> yeah. since people are eaves- – do you, do you know if Yellow Cake is, is coming out in the UK or the US anytime soon? Truly, I don't know. I don't know is the honest answer. Mm-hmm. I will try to find out. Uh, okay. But since we do live in a 21st century world, dear people listening to our radio punk – um, you, you can get it online, I'm sure, come March when it comes out from Alan and Unwin. Um, oh, okay. And so, yeah, it, it, it'll be around. But on that note, Gary, I reckon we must be getting towards our hour. Oh, my God, we are, aren't we? <laughs> well, And, you know, we don't want to go over the hour because all the other podcasts will turn around and they will shake their hands at us and say, it's you who go too long. That's true. And then they will do it. And uh, well, let's let's try not to get into a contest with our friends at Galactic Suburbia for the longest podcast. because Oh, no. It's the writer and the critic. Hi, Ian. Hi, Kirsten. They go the longest. Yeah. yeah. They've gone like two hours and 50 minutes or something. Okay. I don't think we can even do that. Oh, no. That's just silly. You know that's not true. (laughs) You know that we could go for days. That's probably true. We actually could. (laughs) Uh, And if we're both in the same place and there was a little bit of alcohol... Days and days and days. Yeah, one of these days there's going to be a podcasting marathon contest at oh, a world no. Oh, no. where people start people start at nine in the morning of day one, and whoever is still podcasting by day three. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, there's like there's 15 different programming rooms at a Worldcon or something. Could you imagine if they just live podcast all of them, and you could pop in and pop out from room to room? We could have done that at World Fantasy because we were we were in the dealer's room. Everybody was coming in and out. You could you could do an eight hour podcast, talk to thirty different people at a place like that. And who are they? look? You, you do have to live your life at some point. You can't constantly just listen to endless podcasts. <laughs> Jonathan, if you were living your life, you wouldn't be at a Worldcon in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's only funny because it covers you too. Me covers me too. I'm not accept- exempting myself at all. Well, on that remarkably cheap, all right, on that night. I think all right. I wind it up and call it a day. All right, we will talk again next week, and let's think of a topic before next week. Oh well, gosh, it'd be a novel if we did. 
you know, just once. Yeah, we could. Yeah, look, people could email us. They could say, talk about something. Talk about somebody's fiction. And then we'd go, oh, we didn't read it. Why do we do? We'll find out. Okay. On that happy, cheery, sunny note, I'll see you next week, Gary. I'll see you next week. Bye. Okay.